Seems they knew all about your Springfield being single shot. You mean they had repeaters? Yeah. Only this time we just might outfox them. I kind of we got two Winchesters. Winchester 73, directed by Anthony Mann. It seemed to be inevitable that I would come across the Western genre during this cinema immersion tank experience this year, but I wasn't sure what era I would come to. The Western has changed and transmogrified so many times that it may seem difficult for some people to realize that the same genre that could give us the likes of The Hateful Eight fairly recently could have once given us Cimarron, or Stagecoach, so many decades before. And Roy Rogers, of course. But then one of the things that attracts people to the genre, certainly for me, is how it is so adaptable to the time people are living in. How the socio-political economic climates make the attitudes of the characters and stories reflect those of the world they're in. So the Wild Bunch could only be made like it was in 1969, in the midst of the Vietnam conflict, just as Unforgiven could only be made once the Western had been destabilized and lost the power it had over audiences like it did decades before. And speaking of which, as Clint Eastwood once noted, it is one of the most, uh, it's one of the handful of art forms that Americans can call their own. It wasn't starred in France or England or in Southeast Asia. It comes out of the American experience of people finding new lands, claiming their own territory, and men on horses fighting Native American Indians and firing lots and lots of guns. It's a very particular view of America, and it can change, and filmmakers can be subversive or critical or all the more conservative depending on the point of view. At its purest, it serves as a vehicle for pure artistic expression. I could go into what this means when we come to spaghetti westerns, but one essay at a time, all right? To seven people, this gun was a magnet, a treasure, a weapon that promised life and dealt out death. For this saga of the West, Universal International has assembled a matchless cast, James Stewart, whose personal feud led to one of the grimmest manhunts ever filmed. Shelley Winters, trigger sharp and dangerous in her own way. Dan Duryea as vicious Waco Johnny Dean, who killed to get the gun. Stephen McNally, brutal, deadly, who wanted the rifle to slaughter men. So picking out Winchester 73, a film I had not seen before, though I had seen another Anthony Mann-James Stewart collaboration, The Naked Spur, which I'll come back to momentarily, seemed like a good bet. Made in 1950, it was on the cusp of all those old-time westerns that John Ford and John Wayne and Howard Hawks and Joel McRae and Randolph Scott and so many others made in the 30s and 40s, and also on an era where a simplistic traditional view would be challenged, but in ways of psychological complexity and subversion that may or may not be seen. To give an idea of about what I mean, check out the Wages of Cinema episode on High Noon. The director, Anthony Mann, was coming to this genre from making film noir, with movies such as Raw Deal, T-Men, and Side Street being extremely tough pictures with men on the edge engaging in crime and other men hunting down criminals, or caught up in bad timing, which is what Side Street is all about. But it's worth noting that Anthony Mann, who collaborated the first time with Stewart on this film, was taking a gamble here. Stewart was seen by many in America as a kind of wholesome, clean-cut, a kind of presence in movies. 
someone who could go into dr- great dramatics like in It's a Wonderful Life, or deliver the screwball comedy like he did in the 30s and early 40s, like Philadelphia's story. But a gunslinger? A tough guy who can strong-arm a man and look like he can take a guy's head off and fire a rifle with the greatest of ease and perfect accuracy? Pshaw. People at the time would say, maybe. Yet by the time the two men made The Naked Spur in 1953, which features Stewart as a bounty hunter bringing along his intended alive prospect over the length of the movie, by the end he softens up, but just barely. It didn't seem too out of place. After breaking audiences in with Winchester 73, that is. What is this movie, for those who don't know? If one could say it's about anything in quotes, it's about what the West, and in some ways America, was all about itself, epitomized in a rifle called the Winchester 73 after the year. It was part of a limited run of rifles made at the time by the Winchester Company, one of those magical rifles that is described by a particularly memorable character as, quote, one in a thousand. How's this? In 1876 in Dodge City, presided over by Marshall Wyatt Earp, in a nice little touch I never got tired of seeing, he's not wearing the badge and finds it after some fumbling when he asks our two heroes, Lynn McAdam and his partner, High Spade Frank, Stewart and Miller Mitchell respectively, to put their guns to the side during this competition, Dodge City. In order for people to win this Winchester rifle, one has to win a shooting contest. And Lynn's journey after a particular gunslinger who has changed his name to Dutch Henry Brown leads him to Dodge City as the latter man is aiming to win his rifle, too. It's priceless, we're told. But over the course of the movie, the rifle will change over many hands. First, Lynn and Dutch are the tied winners of the contest, each shooting bullseyes repeatedly. And after some back and forth and a cunning trick shooting at a stamp, Lynn wins. Not that this doesn't stop Dutch from cornering Lynn very soon after, like within minutes, kicking his ass and stealing the Winchester away. Then at an inn, a trader and salesman, who in this rather pecul- who's in this rather peculiar big hat, repeatedly infers him not being like a Indian trader. He wins the rifle due to Dutch there with his men, losing painfully at cards. The trader loses his gun to an Indian chief, Young Bull, who takes it because, well, he can, after the Sioux tribe... Uh, isn't successful making a charge at the cavalry, who, I should add, some of them witnessed or at least heard about the loss Custer faces at Bighorn, and their defense and attack becomes a reaction to that loss. The rifle is found by the cavalryman on the battlefield, given to the cowardly Steve Miller, no relation to the some-call-me-the-gangster-of-love Steve Miller. He and his lady Lola, played by Shelley Winters, pops up periodically in the story, get the drop on by Waco Johnny Dean, played by regular film noir heavy Dan Duria, and now he has the rifle. Until Dutch Henry Brown shows up as part of an uneasy partnership to rob the Wells Fargo Bank, and he takes the rifle back, and then, well, don't want to spoil too much, do I? Sound like an engine trader, but with all that smoke in the hills, and you with no gun. Why don't you shoot? The man's right, give him a gun. Supposing I don't tell you. Then what? Where is he? Where is he? Just in case you... I know how to use it. I understand about the last one. The point I mean to make here is simple. 
This rifle isn't some MacGuffin, though one may want to relate the significance of it to some priceless artifact, like, oh, I don't know, the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you call in Raiders Lost Ark, seems so rich in worth that it goes beyond monetary gain. Indeed, the fact that such a thing as a rifle, a gun, is presumably, though not always, beyond a real price tag is significant. What's more American than a goddamn gun, after all? Well, money, perhaps. And at the turn of the century, the nation had a pretty firm grasp on what things were worth and what things weren't. Some guns surely aren't worth much. Remember that scene with Tuco and the good and the bad and the ugly? But in the old west of Winchester 73, money means a lot. It means a whole lot to certainly some more than others. And it's meaningful here. And when Dutch sits down and has this intense, continuing gambling and losing of his money streak and the rifle to this goes to the straightforward trader salesman, it reeks of desperation. What else is the guy going to do? Rob a bank? Hmm. Whereas with the Indian chief, money's no good. This young bull character is angry, after all, as white people took his land and put him into a position of being the bad guy. This whole section, on all the viewings I watched, was the one slightly problematic part of the movie for me. For a story that tries to give us some, if not intense, psychological depth, a la the searchers, it's still a motion picture made at a time when feet were planted in the old-fashioned view of Native Americans, which were, well, savage beasts out to kill the white man. It may be posited that by having Young Bull say these words to the traitor about his side of things, that that's enough to say there's depth. But this is completely undercut by who's playing him, a young Rock Hudson, a white man. This was not uncommon in this time and continued as a practice for Hollywood in the 1960s. Did it take me out of the movie? No doubt about it. And it's the one part of the movie, the treatment of these people, that doesn't work. Or, in its way, it does work, as far as the tableau of the American West that's being portrayed. Hmm. This is meant to be the West in fully mythic terms. Again, Wyatt Earp is a character. It's set during the 1876 centennial. It features characters talking about and sort of direct connections to that notorious figure of General Custer, and features many hallmarks of the classic Western, such as the villainous gunslinger, the hardened killer, robbing a bank, and a duel between two men to the death. Perhaps featuring how myth presents the Native Americans from the point of view of the Old West makes this about right. But I feel conflicted about it, and this didn't change so much on repeat viewings. What I can say deepened was my appreciation and love of man's craft and approach to the filmmaking process. This is a man who knows how to time his wide shots and close-ups for mas maximum effect, to get us to feel these wide spaces of the Old West, but in black and white, it has that timeless quality. How he stages action is exciting, especially in the climax as it takes place not in some street or in an average Old West town, but in a series of cliffs and mountain ledges, pitting the hero Lynn and villain Dutch against one another in a face-off that is intense because they're evenly matched, which is also part of the clever storytelling. We know from the opening shootout contest how good they are, Lynn just barely winning out, so it's anyone's guess who can take out who when push comes to shove. There's one more aspect of this I'll get to shortly. Yet it's also how he stages two or three people talking. How he lets the images of these actors speak and how they're in relation in the space to one another. That works so marvelously. There's a scene where the Waco character comes upon the house Steve Miller brings Lola to, 
which quickly is surrounded by a posse for Waco and his gang. Again, the Old West in action. And shots last not too long, but not too short. How he edits and gets people to see one another, the reactions, the mounting dread, how Lola in one of her moments of bravery taunts Waco, and him almost like a Batman villain amused by it all. And how Steve stands there vulnerable to everything around him. He's the guy who, frankly, we might most be like in that situation. Well, most of us anyway. He's a terrific filmmaker. As for Stewart, he proves his chop simply by being this man Lynn McAdam. He may not have been the sort of mascot of Western heroism that the Duke John Wayne was lifted high up to be. He might have been better than that, frankly, by being more human, down to earth in how he treated such a character as this. He's a guy who grew up under a father who taught him how to shoot, but but as he says, not what to shoot at. It becomes clear Lynn and Dutch have a deep history, though the assumption is that they're old rivals of some kind. Mm. When it is finally revealed why this goes back so deep between the two, their brothers, and Lynn even quips in Dodge City at one point that he doesn't have to change his name to sign up for the contest, one may want to, one may want to argue it's a biblical significance. Now it's time for Abel versus Cain in the Old West, folks. I don't think that's it, though. It's meant to be more fundamental or personal than that. Not to say armchair psychologists might take a crack at the biblical angle. This is where, to me, the part of Winchester 73 being a transitional film really kicks in. This is a story that uses the power of myth, of what the Old West means in the scope of America, and gives it an extra critical kick in the pants. Men in the West of the late 19th century, and of course from a very young age, like the boys who have the first lines in the movie, gawking at the rifle in the window display in Dodge City, are taught to be tough, to be manly, to stand up to others, to protect the women folk. Yes, Steve, where were you when Lola needed you as the Indians were charging down the hill? Hmm? Hmm? Yellow guy, I tell you. And of course, to fire a gun as if it's as American as apple pie. But that one little line Stewart says about being taught how and not what is a jab against the national character of people being taught the how and not the why or what for violence. And for the man with the wrong set of ideas or simply being a sociopath, which Dutch seems to be, it's a rotten combination. In a sense, this movie may mean more in this decade of the 2010s with gun violence being so ubiquitous to American life. I wondered if a gun like the Winchester 73 were around if it would be more than ever prized, golden calf-like, as a piece of property, or just another penile extension. In other words, this is a movie that's questioning what it means to be a gunslinger, a badass, a desperado, a bank robber, even a Native American Indian leading the charge against, usually, certain death, while being these things that people went to see in droves about that period. By the way, this was one of only two westerns man directed that year, the other being the even more psychologically intriguing The Furies with Barbara Stanwyck, which, by the way, I highly recommend that movie too. If I had to say if I found more on repeat viewings, I think after the second viewing, it was more about seeing nuances in the performances, to see if there was anything in, for instance, Duria's work as Waco Dean, a man who seems to enjoy himself so much that it's tempting to enjoy ourselves watching a guy be so dastardly and villainous, Unlike Dutch, who is one of those gruff, mean bastards, without much in the way of a sense of humor. Or if there was any possible symbolism I missed. I don't think Mann was the kind of director to deal that way, so that last part, not necessarily. With his actors, this is a particularly nuanced film to watch with them. 
to see Stewart in command of being such a tough guy because actually you can see some hesitation and even vulnerability if you know where to look. He also gets the fairly obvious but honest line of the picture. My father said if a man had one friend, he was rich. I'm rich. And Shelley Winters provides a lot of small looks and gestures that are rewarding on repeat doings. Though not without flaws, Winchester 73 is one of the masterful examples of the genre, where depth and historical context can be read into, and some 65 plus years on, it still retains power for its action, its dialogue, and how the West is used like another character, as if to comment on the action itself. To put it another way, this is a movie that has Wyatt Earp, and doesn't make it a gimmick. He's a character, just like everyone else is, if only for a little while. Winchester 73 is on DVD now, uh, so you can check it out if you uh, were interested from this discussion. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, send us an email to wagesofcinema at gmail.com. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.